I think we're all seeing a huge change in mental health and well-being culture, and it, it can only be led from the senior leadership teams downwards. If a business will show this compassion, this mental health awareness, that is a huge selling point for me. Myself, years ago, I'd have said, get a grip, get on with it. I think sometimes we're very harsh on ourselves as individuals. I'm a huge advocate for mental health awareness and mental health support. My time at a clinical psychologist showed that there was actually over 30 years worth of stuff that I built up. Hello, I'm Robert Tame and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. Today, my guest is Phil Farrington. Phil spent 22 years in the Royal Air Force before moving into civilian life to work as Head of Food and Safety for organisations including Harrods and Delaware North. In the podcast, we talk about the challenges that Phil has faced in transitioning from the armed forces to commercial businesses, the skills that he could transfer to the workplace, but the attitudes he couldn't. We talk about the compassion Phil has received at work and how working with a clinical psychologist has been pivotal for Phil to better understand and manage his mental health. He gives a candid account of his challenges, how he's re-evaluated his priorities and how his new Alsatian puppy has been one of his saviours during a difficult period. Phil shows great courage in this discussion and I really appreciate him for coming on the podcast to share his story and I hope it helps anyone else out there suffering in the workplace. Phil, welcome to Working for Compassion. Great to see you. Thanks, Robert. Glad to be here and to to support with this and have some discussions. Let's kick off then. Just wondered how the quality of your work life is just now. Well, the last 33 years, I've spent the majority of my time, as you can imagine, in the Royal Air Force, traveling around the world, long times away from home. When I left the RAF, I then went into roles, which required an hour and a half commutes into London and roles around the UK with a lot of traveling. However, this week I start my new role. And it's literally 20 minutes away. And one of the best things of that is I'm home by half four most days. So the quality of life at the moment is outstanding for me. We've worked together previously and just wanted to cover how the pandemic affected you and, and your work. It's been a dramatic time, certainly for the hospitality sector. Yeah, it, it was extremely challenging uh, for a number of reasons. I was placed on furlough twice in the May and then in the November. The concern with that, with being in the hospitality industry and especially the sports industry as well within Stadia, was whether or not I was going to keep my job. A huge, huge psychological effect that was personally. And then to be called back a day before we had our first event with no support with around the COVID in the head of safety role I was in was quite challenging for me to go back and to get a huge sandstorm, if you want, of things to do and in 24 hours was really really difficult there's obviously a lot of pressures around the changes of 
COVID, what we had to do as a business and bringing in change as well. And, and it, it, as we both well know, in the events and hospitality industry, things are wanting to be done and we want an answer now, which can be quite difficult in this work because you often have to go away and research information to come back. The guidance was changing quite often from the government around COVID. It was a really difficult time and it had a big impact on me with mental health as well. Okay. Well, maybe we'll get into that in a bit. But yeah, I'm really interested in your background, Phil, and 22 years in the RAF is a... And then since you left, you've been in industry about 10 years, some really high profile jobs, Harrods and with Delaware North. I'm interested in when you came out of the RAF, the challenges that you faced when you made that transition, both in your working world and in your life generally. Life-wise, I found it quite quite good because I'd, I'd met my wife in 2008 and I'd actually started living out of the mess, living with my wife. So that transition to that sort of side of civilian life, I found quite easy when I left. I think the biggest challenge for people, even the military, and I wasn't too bad at it, is structure. You have that day structure. You know what's going to happen. You have that discipline. You've got to be in work for eight. You finish at five and this sort of thing. But one of the biggest, biggest challenge for me was understanding how businesses operate, you know, and the constraints around budget and who you need to talk to in the different roles and this sort of thing. It, it was a different world. Having been in, in, in the military for 22 years, you, you literally have that structure on which base you're on anyway, with the officer commanding to pick the admin wing and your logistics wings and all that there's a very structure there and then trying to learn how that operates and try to get things done can take a bit of time within business whereas in the military is get it done get it done now is it much more structured then in the military but yeah i think i think on the whole it is very much more structured and did you get good support when you joined the commercial world to integrate into that new world yeah absolutely i said only when i worked at harrods it was brilliant i had a fantastic line manager he was a director of security and he was absolutely brilliant and fundamental in part of my transition in into civilian life and he he was an ex-police officer as well a senior police officer so he'd been through that process as well and you know how to come in and do things and how you need to talk to people in a different way some of the learnings I've had, and again, this was in the training environment the last four years, I think I I work in a way of, as I don't jump in with two feet, I like to know what's happened, why did it happen, what went wrong, why did it go wrong, what have we done to put it right, and then how do we stop it happening again? It's that fundamental thinking through what an issue has been. What was the biggest challenge that you came across? I think mine was how to engage with people being in a in a senior rank in the military it was often you do and you do what i say and sometimes if you go into the civilian world and take that attitude you can get bitten quite severely pushed back and you then have this reputational risk to yourself then that he's gonna he comes in and he you do as i say you know and you can't work like that you've got to go and work with people whilst there's that team ethos in the military there is a time when you have to be really direct and blunt and you will do it whereas if you if you try that in civilian life it it can come back and bite you big time that's really interesting it's a lot about communication and understanding how people are going to respond yeah yeah 
And it, yeah. it's a lot of yeah. getting buy-in as well, I found in civilian life, you know. Interesting. Was there anything that businesses could learn from the armed forces? I think that's it's quite a difficult question, that one, because of the way the military is structured. But I think for me, one of the biggest things is, if I go back to 1988 when I first joined the, the RAF, they used to spend money like water running through your hands, you know. There was a lot of control over budgets and this sort of thing. That had significantly improved by the time I left in 2010. But I think there's that, that piece around budgets, managing costs and this sort of thing. They will benefit from big time, you know. But I think that's changed a lot in recent years as well. I also think in the, in the days when I was first in the military, it's probably the piece around compassion empathy as well but again i've seen that change over years as well you know being an instructor in particular for four years i did five years in total is is how you manage your students and how you manage your people i think there's probably a bit more compassion outside of the military than there is in it when i was there but i think that's significantly improved through talking to individuals over recent years i keep in contact with so when you were doing your service you felt that that was empathy, compassion, that kind of was lacking. Yes, yeah, I can go back to examples. When, if you had financial problems in the early years of my career in the military, the old ways of doing it was, well, we'll take your, your credit card off in your checkbook and we'll give you X amount a week. We will manage your budgeting for you. When I was leaving, that had changed. You turned into what, what they call listening skills, when we did the, the two weeks military train the trainer course on promotion courses, you learned listening skills, you listened to them and you got them to suggest what the issues were. So it became more of a caring, compassionate, empathy environment as well, rather than that old military way of just get it done. And that, that was a fantastic change. And I think that has really helped me in civilian life as well. Right. And moving from command and control to using softer skills of listening and, and getting other people to try and solve their own yeah. problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You, you weren't, it's not like you weren't allowed to make suggestions. You try to get them to suggest it and then build on that and get them to talk around on these things, you know, and often it, it was, it was a lot of listening. There were times when you were sat there with individuals who were in your team or students, whatever they were, and you get that, pause that moment of silence and if you sit there long enough they will then start talking again because they feel like that awkward piece of silence and just really really useful skill i think yeah i agree it's a good negotiating tactic yeah. as well. and what do you think brought about that change in the military and you said you saw a change while you were there and then subsequently you think there's been even more change. What do you think motivated that increase in compassion and empathy? I think the whole change, I think the way that we in life in total now look at, at life and personal life, interacting with work life, that work life balance, the issues around PTSD, the individuals, all service personnel who are coming back, some with some really severe injuries, people who treated them, People who've been out on the battlefield and experienced some horrendous things, you know, and I think that is what has led to a change. And I think the whole the whole of life, whether you're military, civilian, whatever, I think we're all seeing a huge change in that now. Myself, years and years ago, I'd have said, oh, get a grip, get on with it. As, we, as you know, I'm a huge advocate for 
mental health awareness and mental health support and lots of things fall within and outside of that. I think personal experience was my daughter and then my recent own experience as well that I've had. You know, I fully, fully understand it and I'm a huge, huge supporter of that now. Let's move on a bit more in depth to talking about compassion. What's your understanding, Phil, of the word compassion? How would you define compassion? For me, it's about showing sympathy empathy, understanding challenges individuals and groups of people may have, again, both in the workplace and at home, because both interact and one may be brought into the other. And it's that compassionate piece of being able to work and support those individuals and groups through those challenging times. And do you see compassion being, can you apply it to yourself as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we're very harsh on ourselves as individuals. And again, my learnings over the past six months, I've just got to be thinking about myself more and more because all I've ever done, it's always about other people with me. It's always about family members, you know, in particular. Um, Sometimes you just don't see it. So I think you've got to be with yourself as well, look inward as well as outward with it. Yeah. You've touched on this already, but... You really think that there is a role for compassion, emotional intelligence, mindfulness, this self-awareness in the workplace and the military? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. You know, for me, it's again, I started in my new role on Monday. I had a handover of week. One of the first things that the person I'm taking over from is what they're doing around mental health, mental awareness, the compassion. And I think you see more and more of it in the workplace. There are some organisations who don't do it, but there are others. I think everybody is now seeing that there's a role for this in the workplace. Absolutely. Do you think that it can give a business competitive advantage by making it central to their culture and the way they do things? Yeah, without a doubt. You know, again, my interview I had a week last Thursday, I put on the table where I've been. I, I then met with the managing director on the Friday and was quite open. And he said straight away, we have things in place for this now. We have a welfare package within the business um, for anybody who needs it. Brilliant. You just can't fault that. An induction on Monday, Leaflet came with a website to go on if you need any support at all with anything. It, it, it's there. It's in the, in the workplace already. And I, for me... Now, that is a huge selling point for me. If a business will show this compassion, this mental health awareness, this mental health structure, where you can get support from the business as well. Massive, massive selling points. So it would really make you cross the road to go to business B that's offering that rather than maybe somebody else who's offering you a bit more money. You'd actually say that this is a a big factor in in who you choose to work for. Uh, Yeah, again, my whole ethos about work is it's not about the money anymore for me. It's about the role and it's about the company and what have they got in place. It's that's what is fundamental for me now. I don't. It's not about pound, shilling, and pence anymore. But it's about the role. It's about the work-life balance, and it's about what they can give me as well. What do you think holds organisations? back phil from from bringing more compassion and maybe advocating some of these softer skills in 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 the workplace what holds them back i think through through experience it is that they don't want to change we've always done it this way why should we what what you we're paying you to do a job just get on and do it 
And I think there's also some of that feeling that people may, if you want to take the mickey out of it, use it as an excuse for time off because it, it's very difficult to prove. Whereas a physical injury, you will see. Whereas anything around compassion and mental health is very difficult to see in an individual. I think the biggest one for me is we've always done it this way. You know, why, why do we need to change? Thinking about you and compassion, I just want to take you back maybe to your time in the RAF. Are there any experiences from that time where you saw suffering, you witnessed suffering, and was there any experiences you can share with us? I can give a, a personal account again here. My time in the military, 1994, I was in the Falklands and I was notified by signal. I was in the gym at the time playing five side. And I was called by the orderly officer. He'd received what was known as a signal, which alerted me to that my grandmother was seriously ill. Um, they just found cancer and it was really advanced at that stage. And within 48 hours, there was another signal saying she passed away. And I, I couldn't get home. Couldn't get home. Um, they wouldn't allow it for, for non-close family members, such as grandparents. And then in 97, when I was down there in 97, again, my grandfather passed away. I was extremely close to Again, it was he was really unwell before a very difficult time for me. And then I got down there and then he passed away in the January. Um, but I have to say the support I received down there and the phone calls I was allowed home and this sort of thing was really good. But they, they were really difficult times. You know, junior members of staff working for me out on operations. It's their first tour and they can find it really, really difficult, you know, being in an operational environment particularly Iraq, where you've got umpteen rockets being fired into the base and this sort of thing. It can be quite quite difficult for them. So it's understanding, supporting, you know, letting them talk and so on. And they're the sort of experiences you get within the military. People, youngsters away from home in the training environment, first time they've ever been away from home, you become their mum, their dad, their auntie, their uncle, their brother, their sister. You become that guiding light for them. Uh, and they get quite homesick as well and they come to this military environment they go through their what i call square bashing their basic training where they learn to march eye and clean and then they come into the training world where they learn their specific trade and the training that i was in when i finished it was a two-year two-month training course it was a long time you had these under your wing and you develop these relationships i can give a particular example i had one individual whose brother was in the press quite a lot he was a well-known famous individual in the press quite a lot for drug misuse. And she used to come and talk to me in confidence quite a lot about what was happening to him and his recoveries and so on and so forth. And we, she became quite close. And when I left the military and went back on a visit, when she came running over to me and gave me a huge hug, you know, still still called me, hello, flight sergeant, how are you? And I said, shut up, you don't call me that, you know. And it, it was, that was the sort of experience. And I think their life, life-changing and life-learning experiences as well. So it sounds like that relationships, being very close together, being in teams, there's almost like a psychological safety yeah. that's developed. There's a real trust there. Yeah, that that is fundamental to it. You're in, there's a lot of teamwork, as you can imagine, in the military. And that's where you build bonds with your teams. Even when you get posted and you go to a new unit, you build real good relationships with those teams as well. Um, and I don't know if you get that as much in civilian life, to tell you the truth. There are relationships you build, people who you engage with. But 
these people in the military, you work with them and you socialise with them. That's your life. I'm sensing there's almost more support structures in that military life than in civilian life. Maybe that's just the nature of it because you're all in, you're living in as well. But it, it does sound that you benefited from yeah, that. Yeah, there was an introduction years ago of welfare officers. On It used to be the Padre. You had an issue, you go and talk to the Padre. That changed over years. They had trained welfare officers. The, the army had the army welfare services, service as well, which supported me through my second marriage breakup, who were brilliant. I only saw them the twice, and I wish I'd have, looking back now, I'd gone back for more, you know, but I thought, oh, I'm all right now. I've had this, you know, look at the positives and the negatives, and the positives outweigh the negatives, so I don't need to go back now. But I wish I had mm. now on reflection over recent months and some of the cl- clinical psychology work I was doing with the clinical psychologist that I was seeing. And it, it was just fundamental to how the military has changed over years now. I still think there's more for them to do, especially with veterans, but that's another another conversation, I think. What do you think you were reticent to use that service then, you indicating that you used it a bit? What do you think held you back? I think in those days, we're talking, I'm trying to think when it was, it was 2007 that happened. And I think it was that concern of showing a weakness and that people then taking the mickey out of you, you know, oh, you'll see the Army Welfare Service, the old military banter as it was. But the military banter is quite affectionate, you know, at times, even though it's quite harsh, it is actually affectionate. And I think it was showing that weakness. But now I've learned so much over recent years around mental health, mental fitness is another term that's being used now, that if I was in that place again now, I would have utilised that service so much better, I think. That's good to hear. And and maybe men are changing. It's something, as you said, that was a little while ago, but hopefully men are being a bit more vulnerable, having a bit more yeah, trust that they, they can use these services and, and, and it's going to make them feel better. Yeah. And what about moving out of the, of the RAF in business? Have you got any stories there where you've received compassion at work from colleagues or bosses and the effect that had on you? Yeah, and I think, again, this is more recently as well. In, in fact, I can go back to Harrods again and, and to my director there where my older son was having some behavioural issues. We didn't know whether it was ADHD or this sort of thing. And he was referred to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. So I went and spoke to Greg at the time and I actually broke down in front of him. And the first thing he did was shut the door, pull the blinds. You know, brilliant, brilliant. And he said, look, just sit there, talk when you're ready. And then I explained to him what was going on. He said, look, my lab lived about 45 minutes from me. And he said, whatever time you need to take him to appointments, Phil, just take the time and go. Just tell me tell me what day it is. Work from home. If it's four or five hours you're away, don't worry about making up the time. Just go and get him sorted. And that was a huge, huge piece of respect I built for that man. You know, I still have the utmost respect for him now. You know, more recently with... with my time off with ill health recently and the support I got there. The HR business partner was absolutely fantastic. Work left me alone. They said, we will call you once every two weeks. It's just a check-in to see if we can do anything with you. If you don't want us to call, you don't call. And they just let me to get on and go through my my support and treatment over the you know that period of three months. And they were 
Fair play to them. They were absolutely brilliant, Delaware North. I had a call from somebody who said, we knew you were ill. We knew you weren't right. And fundamentally, for my wife to find me with my head in my hands here, literally just about to have a full breakdown. And the support I got from them and the compassion they showed, I can't fault them for that at all. So when you're on the receiving end of that, it sounds like it does have a big impact on you. How would that play forward? Would you be more loyal, do you think, to an organisation if they look at look after you like that? Yeah, I think you're investing in that individual. You're investing in those people in your business. And if they can show that they're investing with you for that time, for you to be away and then to come back, I, I hand on heart, I think that is an absolute superb way of managing your people. There's that concern that you may lose your job, the realisation that maybe you weren't performing as well as you could do, but that was because of where you were with the the mental health and for them to realise that and support that to get back into work. I I think any business who does that, you know, I'd work for them any day. That recent suffering that that you received, what do you think really led to that? What was the trigger for you there? There was a number of things which came to light one was the challenges of COVID the stresses from work on that they were absolutely significant that that 12 month period that not only in the workplace but also with not knowing if you've still got your job because you know the redundancies that they went through we didn't know until you knew and that and that powerpoint came up if you were on it or not then it was cheerio and then what this what my time at a clinical psychologist showed that there was actually over 30 years worth of stuff that I'd built up, which I hadn't thought about, you know, the loss of my grandparents in the Falklands. I wasn't able to speak about that without getting upset. This is only the second time since I saw the clinical psychologist and some of the EMDR treatments we did that I can now talk about them without literally breaking down. And that was through guilt. We found there's a lot of guilt there guilt of marital breakdowns, not being there for my, my children growing up, not being able to see them all the time. I put them to bed every night. There were, there was lots and lots of stuff. I came at what happened with my second wife who was sent home from Iraq. She was short taught. She was having an affair out there. She came back on a Sunday, totally unannounced, and my world fell apart then. Um, and I probably didn't seek enough support. You know? So there's a lot, a lot of stuff built up over, over years and years. And I think with COVID and the challenges of that. And I've been diagnosed with PTSD from an incident in Iraq as well. I don't like loud fireworks anymore. A couple of years ago, something happened. There was a loud bang outside the house. I, I'm not a fan of fireworks anymore. So, yeah. Ah, here's the dog joining us. This is Coco, my puppy. who's six months old and she's huge. Jeremy And this has been one of my saviours over recent months. This is the first dog I've ever had. Going out, walking her at night, in the morning. I go out at 10 past five in the morning. And she has been my, one of my saviours to just take her out with no thought and no care in the world. And one of the biggest things i found is interaction with other people again. Everybody wants to see her because she's a puppy. Everybody wants to meet her. Interaction with other dog owners and walkers. It, it's just absolutely fantastic. You know, what a, what an experience having her has been the last sort of four, four mm. and a half months. That whole story with all those experiences, Phil, that's to actually work through that with a clinical psychologist and be able to communicate that to me, it sounds like you really have got your head around your head, so to speak. And that must be a great relief. 
in 54 years, this is the best in life I have ever felt. I've just had a whole change of what I want out of life over the last probably six months from seeing a clinical psychologist to where I am now. Some things don't matter anymore to me now. It's I've already alluded to um, salary. Don't bother me anymore. I need I need a certain amount to live on and to be you know comfortable on. It's all about work life balance and seeing my grandchildren, seeing my children, seeing family. Now, yeah, I I have never felt so good. You know, I just don't worry about things anymore. It, it, it's that saying it is what it is. Yeah, I like that. And what a journey you've been on as well. I think there's seems to me quite a bit of people reevaluating their priorities, thinking about their purpose, meaning. And the pandemic, I think, has been a big catalyst for that, for people to weigh it up. And hopefully what we see on the back of that is people just being happier, businesses valuing people as well. And it's a lot to ask, but let's hope we keep making that progress. I'm finding sometimes men in the interviews I've been doing for this podcast find it harder to find stories where they've been compassionate. And I'm not sure whether that's because... They're a bit more bashful or, again, it's that thing where it doesn't come natural to want to talk about that or or want to acknowledge it. Would you agree? Yeah, I do agree. Yeah, yeah. I I think they're changing, though. Personally, I think they're changing. For me, again, over recent times and years, I feel quite comfortable, more comfortable now than ever to talk, to be open about experiences and so forth. And I think we're starting to see that more and more. Again, Maybe it was seen as a weakness. Maybe it wasn't macho to do that. We see lots of the ex-military guys now, some of the SAS guys who are on Who Dares Wins Channel 4, who are all doing books about their experiences and so forth. And it's okay to talk. There's nothing wrong with talking. And it's, again, it's that cultural change, I think, that's needed. It's moving forward. We're getting there. But I think there's more to be done. Yeah, I agree. Just thinking about work, what's been your most important work lesson? For me, it's to listen. That's my biggest thing. I'm renowned for interrupting. My wife, if she comes in the door momentarily, she will say, can't you just shut up and listen? It's interrupting people. And that's one of the things I need to learn more and more of. And I'm doing more and more of it as I get older and also being accused of not listening when I should be. Yeah, I think that's a huge piece is letting people just listen. And let people talk, you know. I think it is a really good skill to develop. And I'm like you, I'm I'm trying to get better at it. I have been accused of not being a great listener. And somebody said to me, you are given two ears and one mouth. And maybe you should think about that. <laughs> yeah. well, in, in the military, when I was doing my trainer trainer course, we used to go down there to do this listening skills training. And they actually brought actors in to us. They actually hired actors all in military dress. I remember when I was doing my scenario, I had a young girl come in and she sat down. We had the group, my my group sat there observing and whatnot with the instructor. And she started talking and then she started crying. And then it came to fruition that, that her role was to play somebody who'd become pregnant. Her dad was very much against single parents. And then they suddenly go, right, stop there. The instructor would go, right, let's discuss this. And the actor would stop crying. I just sit there for a minute, and I go right. We're going to go go, and the actor would start crying straight away. And it was just absolutely brilliant to learn those listening skills. And I was talking about those pauses that you get, 
and they were told to hold the pause because they wanted us to try and get them talking again. But we were taught, no, just sit and let them start again. You know, it's just phenomenal learning and it all goes back to that listening piece again. You've worked under lots of people. What do you think the qualities a leader really needs to be successful in today's world? Um, Experience, empathy, compassion, to be able to think outside the box as well, not that blinkered thing. Again, I go back to my boss at Harrods. He was brilliant at literally thinking laterally. He'd always have the question you can't answer, even though you've really prepared for the meeting. To have understanding that outside of work, you have this work-life relationship now. And to be able to support and direct, I think, as well. Are there any leaders that you've worked with? Is there anybody you've read about or, or is there anyone you particularly admire yeah. as a leader? Yeah, for me, and again, it, it goes back to my love of football, Sir Alex Ferguson, and the way he managed those that team of 92, the youngsters, how he kept them out of the limelight, except perhaps David Beckham and nowadays Ryan Giggs. But in those days, these young lads, how he brought them on, how he guided them, how he supported them, he kept them out of the limelight, out of the press. It just for me, he's an inspirational leader. And I've seen I've seen a clip of him doing an inspirational talk to a group of people and his leadership. It just strikes me as he had to be firm at times, but he's firm and fair as well. And he took these individuals under his wing, these young lads. I think he's quite a fascinating character. He just really believes in loyalty and the team, doesn't he? And uh like protecting people as well, which obviously he was trying to do. And you don't hear too many people have a bad word to say about him. As you said, he he was tough at times. Maybe Roy Keane has a few words to say about him. But, <laughs> there is another but, one, actually, but, uh, 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 Thomas Keller, who owns the French Laundry app in, out in Napa Valley. And I think he's seven, eight Michelin stars. He did a pop-up restaurant at Harrods. And that was brilliant. He We all had photos on the roof of his team from... America and around the world that he's got and our team and he signed every photo individually it's all about the team and I had that up in my office at Harrods on the wall uh, for the whole team to see it and that's what it's about it's about a team it's not about individuals I like that what he's achieved and for him to make that effort to sign it all that, that sounds great final question Phil thank you so much for your time what could be a single change that would make the workplace a better place? It has to be a cultural change and it's got to be led from senior leadership and pushed all the way down for me. Culture is a huge thing now in businesses from safety, my background, safety culture to that whole well-being, mental health and well-being culture has to change now and it, it can only be led from the senior leadership teams downwards. I think that's a good answer and, and, and I'd agree. And the more that senior management can walk the walk, uh, and talk the talk that is just going to inspire people because we've all worked in business leaders have a lot of power and, and they need to use that in a positive way Phil I really appreciate your time and and your being so candid I've got a lot out of it and I'm sure my listeners will as well thanks very much is there is there anything else you'd like to add or, or anything you'd, more you'd like to just say just say thanks Robert for the opportunity to join the podcast I've really enjoyed it uh, and to be able to speak freely and openly great Really appreciate that. Thanks very much. Thanks. Cheers. 
This podcast also has a website. The address is www.workingforcompassion.com and that's the number four, not the letter four. On the website, there's more information about how compassion, mindfulness and emotional intelligence is influencing the world of work. You'll also find my story detailing my journey to date and what has motivated me to start this podcast and website. You can also sign up to my newsletter and that will update you when I release new podcasts. It'd be great if you could do that. So why not take a look at www.workingforcompassion.com and yet that's the number four, not the letter four. I'm going to be releasing lots of new episodes with more great guests over the next few weeks. So please sign up to the newsletter and until next time, go well.